It was Saturday, April 22nd, 2000. We were at home as a family. It was 9 o'clock, and the doorbell rang. As the doorbell rang, I remember walking down the hallway, and it was my brother's best friend from high school. He had just come home from spring, for spring break to be able to celebrate Easter with his family, and he was going to hang out with my brother that night. And so they went off and enjoyed the night together and then returned home so that the next day they could celebrate Easter with their respective families. Then on April 30th, 2000, our family returns home from church to a phone call that this young man at the age of 19 fell over dead. I remember going to his funeral. There were hundreds of people filling the auditorium. It was the longest funeral I've ever been to, probably two and a half hours. Person after person sharing about this young man and even mentors coming up saying in the last few months, he told us that he wanted to dedicate his entire life to Jesus Christ, give his entire life to service of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, one question came to mind. Why do bad things happen to such good people? It was spring 2007. I had worked at an organization for three and a half years. I had transferred departments, and as I was working in this new department for about three years, I learned all of the responsibilities to be a manager. I was scheduling people, I was doing the audits on the department, I was doing all of the paperwork necessary for my manager to actually go to meetings. When, for the third time, I was passed over for a promotion by people who knew way less than me and did way less than me and had numbers that were way worse than mine. And in that moment, the question came up, why do good things happen to bad people? Ever been there before? Ever asked those questions in your life? Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? We live in an incredibly confusing world that is so disorienting when life does not line up to the way in which we imagined. And this morning, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to challenge us and is going to try to answer that question, albeit in a very frustrating and yet helpful way. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. And turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 15 to 29. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. But Ecclesiastes is about halfway through your Bible. You get to Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be in chapter 7, starting in verse 15. And this morning, the author is going to try to give us some sort of answer in how we can live in such a confusing world. But I just want to be honest with you, the answer is going to be frustrating, because in many ways, he's not going to answer it. 
And yet, it's going to be the very answer that we need. I've been to school. I took three years to go through school to be a pastor. I'm going to school now. I know the theological answer to that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because God is good. God has plans. We don't understand them. He is glorious, and he's working out his plan. I get that intellectually. I can write a paper on that reality. But that's a reality that's hard for my own heart to understand. And this morning, the author wants to give us some sort of path to try to understand that reality just a little bit better. And I think it's the path that we actually need. And so here's what the author is going to show us this morning. That in the face of a confusing world, fear God first. That in the face of a world in which so many things we just do not have practical answers for, the only path forward is that we lay down those questions, we lay down those answers, and we simply just look to God and we fear God first. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. As we do, would you stand with me as we read in order to... Receive God's word as he speaks to us this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found." 
See this alone, I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So life is incredibly complex. There are so many things that happen that are confusing, that we don't know the right thing to think or the right thing to do, and yet the author here has been inviting us week after week to just sit and listen and to learn from his wisdom. And we need this wisdom because we live in a world with tension, don't we? So many of us want the world to be black and white, and yet there is a ton of gray And we have to figure out how do we live in this gray area because it's a lot harder to live in the gray area than to declare something right or wrong. Years ago, I lived in Germany, and one thing I did not anticipate when I lived there is how many times Germans would confront me on the president of the United States. Regularly, I was asked, what do you think of the president? If you're trying to share the gospel, that's not the question that you want to get into. And by God's grace, he opened my eyes to this reality. And I began to say it so many years ago and continue to say it today, that if we knew every decision that the president, I don't care which party, the president of the United States made, we would want him or her in prison. And yet, if I was in their position having to make every single decision that they make, I would probably make every single same decision that they made. Do you see the tension there? We have 5% of information, and we want to act like we have 100% of information. And yet there's a tension that those people in high positions have to make decisions to choose between two bad options. They live with a tension. We too must live with this tension because we live in a broken, sinful world and we are born as broken, sinful people and when those two things collide, nothing good happens. It's not until we are changed by Jesus Christ It's not until we come to faith in Jesus and he begins to show us truth. Someone said to me a couple weeks ago, if only God was clear. I said, I don't think God is unclear. God's been clear this whole time. It's you and I that are unclear. Sin has so warped our minds that God has not changed his We have been the one to be unclear. And yet, so often we are unclear on how to handle life. And the author here just wants us to uh, look to God. And he's going to highlight three areas where this lack of clarity or confusion happen. And the answer to all three is going to be the fear of God. And I want to help you understand just a little bit what the fear of God is. Is Deuteronomy 8, 6 tells us that if we obey God, that shows that we fear God. Deuteronomy 10, 12 tells us that when we love God and we serve Him, that is our way of fearing Him. 
Isaiah 50, verse 10, tells us that we are to trust in God's name and we are to rely upon him. That's the way in which we fear him. We then read in Matthew 10, 28, that Jesus says, Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but cannot destroy the soul, but rather fear the one who destroys both body and soul in hell. That the fear of God is to recognize who God is and the power that he has and to be in reverent awe of who he is. To the point that uh, Hebrews eleven seven tells us that Noah, when there had not been an ounce, one single drop of rain, built a massive boat. And the reason he did that is because he feared God. Years ago, we got to go to the Empire State Building. If you've ever been there, uh, anyone ever been to the top of the Empire State Building? All right, yeah. So if you, I think you know me by now, I trip over my shadow. And so the moment I got to the top of the Empire State Building was the moment I, I hugged the back wall because that glass, although I'm sure it's rated a certain rate, uh, looked flimsy to me. And yet the view was amazing. There was this beautiful view of of New York City and the different boroughs and yet I couldn't quite get myself to the edge and to the glass because I know who I am and I know what that ground a thousand feet below can do. There's a reality that God is awe-inspiring and yet we know that he is holy and we are not. And out of his holiness, he has every right to damn us to hell. And so we walk with a fear, a righteous, awe-inspired feeling uh, of who God is and wonder of who God is. And it's this fear that should actually uh, bring light to these confusing areas. And we're going to look at three. So let's look at the first one. We are to fear God over your works. We need to fear God over your works. So often we believe might makes right. That if I just do the right things, then the right outcomes will happen. We see this in John chapter 3. We see Nicodemus, a Pharisee, uh, having observed and listened to Jesus, comes in the stealth of night to Jesus, and he begins to say, hey, Jesus, we know that you're a good teacher, and you do amazing things, and so you must be from God. And immediately, Jesus just kind of pauses him for a second. He says, whoa, 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 hold on for a second. The way to have eternal life is to be born again. Jesus knows exactly why Nick and Nevis is there. He doesn't even ask a question. But Jesus sees right through it and he says the way to have eternal life is to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, "Uh, I'm old. I can't go into my mom's womb again. To which Jesus replies that what is born of flesh is flesh and what is born of spirit is spirit. That you and I need a spiritual birth. Do you see what's happening there? Nicodemus, in all of his right way of living, came to Jesus and said, Hey, I know that you're from God. I'm trying to be with God. I need your help. I need you to tell me the right things to do, and I need you to tell me the right information. Then I'll be right with God. 
And Jesus said, it's not about what you do and it's not about your information. It's about your heart transformation. So often we think that if we just do the right things, the right outcomes will happen. That's called karma. That's not Christianity. That's not the world, the broken world that we live in. And so we have to have this uh, mindset, and really we have to have our mind shaped around what's called the theology of sin. We need to have this idea of what sin actually is. And, and the reformers in the 16 and 15 and 1600s came up with this term, total depravity. This idea that every aspect of your being has been affected by sin. Now, you're not as bad as what you could be by God's grace. But every aspect of who you are has been affected by sin. And so our works don't make us right with God. And so we don't do good things to get good outcomes, but we do good things because God is good. God is holy and we desire to honor a holy God. And we see this play out in our passage here. Look at verse 15. The author just starts by saying, In my vain life I've seen everything. Seen it all. This is him recognizing the confusion fusion of the world, recognizing the way sin plays out in the world. Church, this is the reality of why you and I need to be in relationship with others because you are blind to your sin, you will believe the lies of your sin, and you will fall into sin. I cannot tell you the number of people who have declared to me they are going to walk with Jesus, and I don't believe they are walking with Jesus today. Your declaration does not mean anything if it's not followed by a life of love and treasuring Jesus Christ. And the only way that happens is that we have others in our life helping us to walk in the ways of Jesus. Because this guy sees how vain life is. And, and notice how this, how this uniquely plays out in this passage the unique vanity is that there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a man who is living morally, and we would think by living morally he would live longer, and yet he dies. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. There are some wicked people that just have nine lives, don't they? And it's jarring, isn't it? It's jarring to us. So what do we do? Well, in verses 16 to 17, he shows us what not to do. It's so easy to see the confusion of life and to think, okay, the way to get the life I want is to just buckle down and uh, white-knuckle obedience. And yet, notice what he says in verse 16. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. 
Don't buy the lie that if you are just better, then you can avoid bad things. We can't do the right things to get out of God what we want. If you're married as a woman, how many of you would love it for your husband to come home and say, I don't love you. I just want something from you. Any woman is like, man, that's exactly what I dreamed of. And yet so often that's, that's exactly what we think about God. It's not by our good works that will somehow avoid the bad in the world. And so he's saying don't go down that path because why would you destroy yourself? This morning I was reading a story of Martin Luther. He is the one who discovered that grace is by, that the, the gospel is by grace and grace is by faith in Jesus Christ. We are in a Lutheran church because this man discovered that it's not based on what you do, but based on what God has already done. But before he discovered that, he was known for the amount of pressure he put on himself to do good works. To the point that Luther would actually, as he lived in a monastery, he would refrain from taking blankets at night, believing that uh, he needed to suffer in order to be more right with God. People actually thought he was going to freeze to death. On one account, he uh, believed and knew that you were to, at the time, go to a confessional. Most of the monks that he lived around would go to the confessional and, and confess just light things like, hey, I coveted my neighbor's potato salad. And then they would leave the confessional. Luther believed that he needed to every single day go to the confessional and confess every single thing that he had thought or done the day before to the point, at one point, he was in the confessional for six hours confessing every sin of his. And Luther writes about that time before coming to faith in Christ, saying that it's that dark season that caused such destruction to his body. Living by works can be incredibly exhausting, both mentally and physically. So the author says, why destroy yourself in that way? But so often, you know, we see bad people get away with bad things. And we think, well, if we can't beat them, let's join them. Notice what the author says. Look at verse 17. He says, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? If you end up giving in to your pleasures and passions because everybody else gets away with it, what you're doing is revealing what's actually in your heart. You're revealing what you actually care about and what you actually live for. Your words may say, I want to follow Jesus, but your heart is proving you could care less. We see the disciples do the very thing in Matthew 20. James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, when you usher in your kingdom, can my boys be at your left and at your right? If you're a grown man and your mommy is still fighting your battles, that's your first problem. 
But the second problem is that they are proclaiming and desiring a place of honor in the kingdom of Jesus. And do you know what he says? Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they're like, sure can. Because they think it's a cup of blessing. And yet it's a cup of the wrath of God poured out for sin. They were all about themselves. You know what they call that? Narcissism. When the world is all about you and what you can get out of it. The author says that's going to destroy you. And so, what's your motivation? Because if you really think about, hey, I'm going to try to do really good to get what I want, or I'm going to try to do really bad because then I get what I want, what is your motivation in that moment? The very foundation you're building your life upon is you. So let me ask you, are you being motivated by God? Or are you being motivated by good? So often we elevate good to the place of God. C.S. Lewis says that the greatest enemy to best, which is God, is good. And so we need to be careful that we do not settle for the good of the world, but rather, notice what he calls us to in verse 18. He says that it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. He is wanting us to understand what he's saying here. And what does he want us to understand? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. It is the one who honors God and the one who fears God that is able to pave a path through life. Notice, this isn't about getting it right. This is about getting God and giving God glory. There are a lot of right things that are done for jerkish reasons. If you read 1 Corinthians, you will see that the church there is boasting Look at the ways in which I heal people. Look at the gift of speaking in tongues. In that famous 1 Corinthians 13, Paul just says, If I can speak in tongues of angels but have not love, what am I but a noisy gong? Have you ever been around a gong? It's annoying. We saw last summer in Revelation chapter 2 that there's a way in which the church at Ephesus loved the truth. And yet they lost their first love, the love of God. It's not about being right. It's about honoring God in all things. And so church, this should cause us to pause and to humble ourselves. It should cause us to stop and take a moment to see the glorious nature of God and to see how little we actually are. And instead of looking horizontally and comparing ourselves to one another and thinking, hey, look at how much better I am in the race than everybody else. Elevate our eyes and look to Jesus. You will find two things in that moment. You'll find that you failed the race incredibly, not even close. But you'll also find in that moment a jetpack from Jesus to get you to the finish line. 
So we need to humble ourselves and lean into who God is and to trust in his authority and his ways. And that's going to take time. It takes time to just be with Jesus. And it takes energy. Our natural selves do not want to press into Jesus. And so it takes energy to fight and say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to Christ. But then there's a second area that is confusing, that he wants us to fear God, and that is to fear God over your wisdom. This is where I struggle. So easy for me to think if I can just figure it out, if I just have enough right information, if I just work smarter combined with working harder, then somehow I can work my way through all of the bad things in life and get to the outcome that I desire. But notice how he unravels that reality. Look at verse 19. He starts with the benefit of wisdom. He says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Did you see that? One wise man is greater than ten rulers, ten kings in a city bound together, fighting a war together. I know there's a new math out there, but I don't know how that happens, right? One over ten. Well, why does that happen? Because so often when we work from our power and our ability, we allow that to drive us to the point that we end up exposing weaknesses in our lives. And wisdom can exploit those weaknesses to their gain. We see this in our own uh, history as a country. Christmas Eve, 1776, the Americans are on the East or on the west side of the Delaware River across from the city of Trenton where the Hessian army, a stronger, smarter, more powerful army is uh, living it up because they believe the war is in their hands and in the stealth of fog, Washington with incredible wisdom takes his troops quietly across the Delaware River and on that Christmas morning, 1776, pounces upon the Hessian army and defeats the Hessians. And that single battle, they say, is the turning point for the entire American Revolution. Outmanned, outgunned, and yet the wisdom of Washington defeated them. So we know how powerful wisdom actually can be. And yet this wisdom has limits, doesn't it? Because look at verse 20. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So as good as wisdom is, it has no ability to prevent you from sinning. You can't think enough right thoughts that will prevent you from sinning. Having right information in your mind will not help you to uh, will not guarantee, I should say, it will help, but it will not guarantee your resisting of sin. Do you know how you guarantee the resisting of sin? 
Paul tells us in 1, Timothy, or in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You and I have the power to resist sin, but it's not by our intelligence. It's not by our wisdom. It's by the power of God. That's why we fall into sin so often. We look at sin and we think, I've got no power, I've got no ability, and so we just give in. Or we become arrogant and we look at sin and we think I've got this I'm going to say no and both ways we get beat down uh, I think it's an acts the sons of Sceva uh, they are proclaiming all the ways of of God and and the demons come and they're like uh, I know Jesus and I know Paul but I have no idea who you are because they're doing it in their own power to the point that the demons beat them strip them naked and they run off Because they neglected the fact that power comes from God. You see, more information does not equal greater wisdom. We need to ensure that we don't deceive ourselves. But this deception is multifaceted, isn't it? Because look at how this deception plays out in verse 21 and 22. He says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Have you ever had someone say great things about you? Feels good, doesn't it? Man, it goes down deep into the soul. It is very encouraging. Have you ever been around that person and they are speaking ill of others? In such a way that you know they would never say that to that person's face. Do you know what you should do in that moment? You should pause and you should say, okay, hold on. Uh, just five seconds ago, I was drinking it up, all the praises that you were saying to me. But if you're going to say that evil thing about that person behind their back, perhaps I shouldn't trust the praise that you give. That's what he's saying. Don't take to heart all the things that pay, people say because there are people who flatter you. Say wonderful things to you. And yet behind your back they are cursing you. May you not be that kind of person that flatters people. All the while you have a different mentality and curse them behind their back. And we know this to be true. Because he says in verse 22 that the heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. It's so easy for us to base life upon what people think and say, right? To just be guided by how people speak to and about you. And yet all you have to do is just pause and think about how fickle you are. Anybody ever woke up in a bad mood? What did you do? You laid horizontal for five to eight hours, and you woke up, and you're just cranky. 
how fickle we are, how easily changed. Church, I, I said it a couple weeks ago, but I want to say it again. This is why it matters who you listen to. Just because someone proclaims that they are a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean that we should give them a hearing into our lives. You need to listen to people who don't just say they follow Jesus, but fear God. And as a result of fearing God, they submit to God's word, they love God's word, and they try to live from God's word. They are a people that exalt Christ and are saturated with the word of God. And then they can start to speak into your life. Because anything other than the word of God is simple fickleness in life. So we need to base our life upon God in his word to the point that, look at what he says in verse 23. He tests and, and tries to determine everything by wisdom. And yet notice what happens when he seeks this wisdom. It is far from him. He is doing everything he can to find answers. And yet the answers are far from him. Ever gone through a hard situation in life? And your mind is running 100 miles per hour trying to figure out why you're going through this situation. What happens at the end? You're exhausted, frustrated, confused. Wisdom is far from you. But notice who has the answers. Look at verse 24. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? It's almost like there's a rhetorical question here. Because if we really look at ourselves in the mirror, if we really look at the world, and we really look at all of our options, there's only one answer. It's God. A couple months ago, I was coming back from... Geisinger, real late at night, I had to visit somebody in the hospital, and uh, on the way back on Route 11, it was incredibly foggy, probably one of the foggiest nights I have seen since living in central Pennsylvania, and the way that I was able to get home was uh, in the middle of the road, they have the lines that are colored, and then they have the, the reflectors, and that as my light reflected off of those reflectors, I was able to see where the road was, and I was able to stay on the right side of the reflectors and just kind of follow that all the way home. In the midst of the fog of your life, God is the reflector that you must look at and that you must fear to be able to make it all the way home. There are many who declare that they follow Jesus and they never make it home because they take their eyes off of the reflector and prove they never cared about Christ to begin with. The only way for you to make it all the way to your eternal destiny is to keep your eyes fixed on God who is the reflector. And may we be a people who do that. May we be a people who look to God in all things and ensure that our lives are, the, are centered around God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, uh, Do not... 
It says, trust in the Lord with all your understanding and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The only way your path gets straight is not leaning on what you know, but leaning on what God knows and to rest in him. And then we see the third confusing area, and that is to fear God over your ways. This is different than works because works are our uh, ability to try to make it right with God. These ways are us trying to understand life. It's maybe a specific grasping when life doesn't make sense and it throws you punches and you're trying to figure out the scheme of like, why is it all happening this way? And notice how the author plays this out. Look at verse 25. He says, he turned his heart to know and to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He wants to understand why is wickedness so foolish and why is foolish madness. And so he employs an example. Look at the example that he employs in verse 26. He said, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. What are snares, nets, and fetters? They are used to trap animals. The author here is not speaking about all women. Not all of us, or I'm not a woman, so all of you have these qualities, but he is talking about a specific kind of woman that you can read about in Proverbs 5 through 9. In Proverbs chapter 5 through chapter 9, you will read of a woman who is seductive, who entices sexually. She is flirtatious. She is trying to lead you astray and into ungodly ways. And so the author is employing this picture of this woman as a way wickedness plays out. And it's so easy for us to try to scheme and think, like, how do I get around this? And notice what he says. The one who pleases God escapes her. So often we think, man, if I just have a great plan, I can still walk by that seductive house and not go in because I've got a great plan. So often we think as long as I get to the edge, I can stand on the line of sin without crossing over and I'll be fine because I have a strategy. The author gives us a strategy. Please God. Years ago, I had a friend of mine, we were walking in town one day, and he told me, he said, you know the way in which you fight sin? Stop thinking about it. So often you identify a sin in your life, and you think, okay, let's not do this, let's not do this, and you come up with all these strategies on how to fight and get rid of that sin. And he said, all that does is just further feed that sin and press it deeper into your heart and into your mind. He said the way to fight it is to get your eyes off of the sin and onto something more beautiful, which is Jesus Christ. 
The key to fighting your sin is to not examine and look so intently that you neglect looking at God, but rather you look at God. And this leads the author to continue to look at the scheme of things. Look at verses 27 to 28. He says, behold, this is what I found. He's wanting to try to figure this out while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Okay, so he's trying to figure out why all this happens. Please don't get lost in verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man in a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. He is not saying men are better than women. Do not take that out of this passage. He's actually very poetically saying how terrible men and women actually are when it comes to righteousness. When it comes to following God, he has observed thousands of men. Found one. He has observed thousands of women. Found none. Because we, in our own power, cannot live a righteous life. And yet so often we either try to scheme our way to live a righteous life or we try to figure out the schemes of the world to try to avoid so that we can have a righteous life. And he's saying neither work. One is very active and one is very passive. But the problem is, is that we are looking horizontally and not vertically. Because notice what he says in verse 29. This is what he found. And this is the crux of it all. This is what he found. That God, not his name, not his buddy's name, not his pastor's name, God made Man, upright. He is understanding in all of this that his only hope to be upright is not to scheme his way because if we scheme our way, what do we bring into the scheme? Our sin. It is not what we can do, but it is an utter dependence upon God to make us right. It is the only way that we can actually be right with God. It is what Nicodemus could not understand in John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus uh, really uh, by virtue of flattery to tell him how to have eternal life. And Jesus simply says the way you have eternal life is not through your ability but through the Spirit. And Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus just is like, like you and I, like, this is crazy talk. I don't know where the Spirit goes. That seems utterly hopeless. Like, how do I find God if, if I'm supposed to find the, the wind and the Spirit's like the wind? Like, how do I find God? And Nicodemus just says, how can these things be? And Jesus is like, uh, are you the teacher of Israel? 
and you don't understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, Nicodemus, you are so cited by your ways, by your works, by your wisdom, that you have no clue what I'm saying. So here's the way you get what I'm saying. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You hear what Jesus said? The way out, the way to be upright is to not look at yourself, but to rather look at the Son of Man who is perfect, who has come, and who must be lifted up. But he uses this crazy illustration from Moses. Well, if you go back to Numbers 21, you will realize that the people of God, they are bitter, they are murmuring, they are complaining that God has taken them to this wilderness and he's not provided for them. And so God sends fiery serpents upon the people and they st- the serpents start biting the people and people drop over dead. And in that moment, God tells Moses, pick up one of the serpents by its tail and lift it high in the air. And as the people look to the serpent, despite the fact that they've been bit by the serpent, if they look to the serpent raised in the air, they will be healed and they will survive. Church, you and I have been bit by sin. We have been bit by a sinful nature, by a selfishness, by a self-centeredness, by a self-grandizement where we are arrogant and elevate what we can do. But it's only when we uh, put ourselves down and lay ourselves down and we look to Christ who's been elevated. And we run to Christ who's been elevated and we turn away from us and turn to Christ And we give our sins to Christ that he takes the wrath of God for our sin. And he dies. And we do not celebrate Good Friday because Good Friday is so good. We celebrate Good Friday where Jesus died because Easter is so amazing because Christ rose from the dead and he didn't just rise as we saw last week. He ascended into heaven and he is seated in the right hand of God reigning and ruling today. And as Jesus tells us in John 14, he has sent his spirit to live inside all who believe to guide you, to convict you, to show you the way of God, and to empower you to live for God. And so the way in which we live in such a confusing world is we look to the one who is raised on the cross, and then we look to the one who's been raised to the right hand of the Father, and we rest in the spirit that we've been given. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ in here this morning, you have absolutely no power to get through a confusing world. Why do 
bad things happen to good people? Your answer is, I don't know. Sounds a lot like my answer. But mine has a comma at the end. And that comma says, I can look to Jesus. And he provides a path through the fog. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to plead with you to look to Jesus. He will provide a path through the fog. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to plead with you to just humble yourself. Spend time with Jesus. Find those competing glories that are robbing your heart from loving Jesus and put them to death and begin to look intently at the beauty of the one who died for you and conquered sin and death. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? All I know is that in the midst of a confusing world, we are called to fear God first. And when we fear Him, He guides us through to our eternal home. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is for us to want to search out answers. When we are confused, we grope and grasp as blind men. And yet, apart from your spirit, we do not know where we go or what we must do. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in us this morning. I confess how often I'm given to brooding over situations in life. And my initial thought is not to fear you, but rather to seek wisdom. I pray that you would change that in me. And that you would change that in us as a church. That we would be a people who would exalt you first. I pray. In your son's name, amen.